Well, I was running out of room on my napkin, but uh, to tie this actually into our previous discussion. <laughs> you need a bigger napkin, man. <laughs> engineering size napkin. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. And today we've got uh, what for me is a very interesting episode. Hopefully, everyone else finds <laughs> for me it too. <laughs> yes, for, for us, I should say. I, I should yes. single just myself out. Uh, but we are going to go maybe deep into the weeds in heat transfer and aerodynamics. Uh, there were a couple interesting articles that we saw and uh, a listener question that we had. So um, this is something that, uh, yeah, I mean, it's something I've been a proponent of for a long time, but uh, just using fans for indoor training and how much of an impact it makes. Yeah, I mean, any, as we're coming out of the, the, the pain cave season, it's like we're recording on April 5th and it's, at least in Toronto, it, you can ride outdoors now if you're, you know, uh, hardy, let's say. It's, it was sunny today. There was a little bit of wind, but well, it was a lot of wind, but it was it was dry. So I, I know people that I'm working with that are riding outdoors, but lots of us are still are still doing trainer work. And as anyone who's ever done any trainer work knows, it's pretty unbearable without a good fan. So fans, fans are a must. And that's where this article that uh, Andrew dug up and sent to me uh, a couple of weeks back comes in. Yeah. And uh, before we get into this, um, I just want to do a quick shout out to Jackson Laundry. Um, so for anyone who watched the Oceanside 70.3 race, um, that was a phenomenal finish. I haven't actually seen the coverage of the race yet. It's something I want to go back and uh, uh, pay my blood money to outside TV to, uh, <laughs> to actually watch the replay. But this is something that's got me convinced. I'm, I'm going to pay that $7 or whatever it is to, to go and watch it. But uh, Jack is someone I've worked with uh, on aerodynamics previously with the virtual wind tunnel. Um, we had talked about working with him for uh, with with Michael, um, but uh, that is yet to happen. But um, yeah, it's because I'm blaming Cody Beals for that because Cody said <laughs> don't help him at all because he's already too fast. So so Cody, this is your fault. And it turns out Cody was right. Um, <laughs> yeah, clearly. Phenomenal race. So uh, to to beat some world-known names like uh, Lionel Sanders and Alistair Brownlee, among many, many others. Mm -hmm. um, so phenomenal race. It's something I want to go back and watch. And to see someone, to see a Canadian, um, someone I've I've raced, not against, but in the same races, <laughs> uh, in some of the, the feeder, you know, low-level local series. Not low-level, that's the wrong word. In the local series, uh, the, the Multisport Canada races. So it's awesome to see someone local do that. So kudos to Jack. Yeah, big time for sure, Jack. And if you're uh, if you're listening or if somebody's listening who, who, who has your ear uh, and you do want to take us up on some arrow testing, if you want to get even uh, potentially even faster, then uh, then hit us up because we'll definitely be doing more of that this summer. Cody might start letting air out of your tires, though. <laughs> yeah, that that we uh, we have no control over <laughs> and we take no responsibility for. OK, so fans, even though it's so while they're still a little bit relevant, uh, there was this uh, uh, cycling tips uh, article on uh, on fans and what what was interesting uh, and this is something that you you said to me Andrew was this is the first time that you've seen a fan review first of all fan reviews are obviously not a huge part of the review marketplace <laughs> right like of all the things you're going to review uh, fans are probably not at the top of the list 
But um, this is the first one that you've seen, and I agree. I haven't seen the, this otherwise, uh, where they were objective in their measurements, which is what makes you know us yes. very, very interested. Yes. Uh, fans are usually very subjective. Um, this one feels colder. This one feels faster. <laughs> this yeah, one's louder. And, 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 and hang on to that thought, listeners, because we're going to come back to subjective versus objective a little bit later in this conversation. So that's a, that's a good one to keep in mind. And to be honest, when I started reading this article, I thought, okay, this is just going to be another review of which fan blows harder. Um, so that was... Uh, That's the title for this episode, which one blows harder, by the way. <laughs> Thanks for that, Andrew. Good. Perfect. Uh, I'm glad I could contribute. Um, so what was super interesting about this, though, was um, it wasn't to target a specific brand. Uh, it was looking at mostly types of fans. Uh, but just the effectiveness and and why you would want to have a certain type of fan. Mm-hmm. So how do you get objective measurements? Like how do you get uh, quantitative measurements with fans? Um, there there are stats on the fans, but that doesn't tell the whole story. So you've got uh, your the volume you're moving. So it's usually in CFM um, cubic feet per minute. Or mm-hmm. there's meters cubed per hour if you're living anywhere other than Canada or the U.S. <laughs> yep. um, so those are the common ways of looking at it. And that's that's essentially, it's used for um, calculations of how, how much air you can evacuate from an area if you're trying to circulate air in a house, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's where those measurements are typically used. Where this comes into play is you can get, uh, you can at least get average velocity um, of a fan by looking at the diameter of the fan and the, the volumetric flow rating. So you divide the... Uh, meters cubed per hour. So you've got uh, volume divided by area and that comes out with velocity. So you'll mm-hmm. end up. With- I think they actually took a, uh, took a, oh man, I wish I remember the, an anemometer. What's the the device that measures measure air speed. There you go. Yeah. So I think they, they bought one. I actually have one. They're, they're like 20 bucks on Amazon, just like anything, any other <laughs> instrument you, they used to cost $400. You can now buy it for 20 bucks on Amazon. So yeah, they had an anemometer. Uh, so they actually took you know, real world measurement, uh, airspeed measurements from these fans as well. And that is important because, um, what I'm talking about is average, which is just Mm -hmm. the total air it's moving divided by the area. Um, but what's going to happen is your fan blades push air different areas. Uh, so where they're generating a lot of, uh, volume flow, um, you get high velocity and where they're not like the hub, um, you kind of get a dead spot there. So I actually find with the fan that I have, if I sit right in the middle where it's focused dead on me, I've got this nice little wind shadow around my head. Um, <laughs> so it's like the the perfectly wrong location to have it. Um, so I've actually got it angled slightly high or slightly low to uh, uh, to actually blow air on my face, which is where you know you don't want sweat in your eyes. So that uh, that helps in that way. Sure. So they've got um, these velocity measurements, which are definitely important, uh, and they've got the uh, the volumetric flow ratings. Um, both of those are quite important. There's wattage they provide, which is just the at least the power consumption. You can actually uh, calculate a pumping power of the fan, like a, a hydraulic power. Um, that's yeah. I mean, it's it's basically pressure times volumetric flow rate. Uh, it's kind of important, but the pressure doesn't really matter as much. That's more how fast it can go. So it's kind of saying the same mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. So as, as a, as a, as an athlete experiencing this, this fan, that probably isn't going to color that experience very much. 
No, it's not like, uh, you know, you're doing 300 watts and it feels like <laughs> a certain amount and then you do 100 and it feels like a certain amount. Like you'll probably yeah, so get it's, it's, it's probably a little bit of a red herring in this in this conversation then. It is. Unless you're but, unless you're very particular about your, you know, your electricity bill. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so the the truly interesting part about this article that sets it apart from everything else is that they used uh, the core sensor, which anything that uses the core sensor, the core body temperature sensor, is definitely going to get our interest. Um, <laughs> I'm probably going to get a shout out on the show. So, uh, <laughs> But as soon as I saw that, I thought, okay, this is something I've got to go into the details for this. I've got to look harder at this um, to see basically what was going on. Um, and it's awesome because... Like not only is it this great measurement that is data driven, um, it's not just a, this fan blows harder, but um, you can actually start looking at the, the amount of cooling. Um, now, the, the challenge with the core sensor is it's basically a point measurement. So you're measuring cooling at one location in your body and you're assuming it's kind of representative for what's going on. Uh, the, the way they dealt with this is actually, there's a picture in the article um, but he put six sensors on in different locations to measure, <laughs> yep. um, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's six points. So it's, it's better. It's not perfect, but, uh, you can basically calculate the heat flux at each point. Yeah. So, I mean, what core claims to do is to be able to calculate the, you know, your core temperature, even with just one sensor placement. Right. Yes. So, um, you, you can definitely get, you know, skin temperature in different locations and this is maybe something we gotta we gotta come back to core about but what's and i've seen like you've if anyone's been following the norwegian team and their thermal stress training stuff they are also festooned with core sensors and so i'm just curious what the what the kind of the the argument from from the from the side of core would be for placing more than one sensor when their claim is that one sensor is is going to be able to give you your your true core temperature do you have a thought on that I, I do. Um, so there was actually a webinar I attended, I don't know, two weeks ago. Um, so we'll have to link it in the show notes. But uh, it was done by um, uh, Chris Blumfeld Brown. Um, so who's someone we've spoken with many times before. Um, mm -hmm. And he's always super interesting to listen to. But uh, his point in this this webinar, and I think we discussed it when he was on the show, was that the core sensor, the strength of the core sensor is not that it measures surface temperature. There's lots of mm -hmm. things that can measure surface temperature, but they actually measure heat flux. Um, so heat flux is just the amount of heat going through a patch of skin, for example. So you could have a surface temperature that's quite low or quite high, but have zero heat flux because of the conditions around it. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're getting much cooling. Um, so having multiple of these sensors, uh, what it can actually do is calculate the heat flux on different parts of your body. So you can calculate the heat in and out of your arms or in and out of your legs or in and out of a portion on your, uh, your core. Um, so under your armpit, the, uh, axillary, is that the right word? Axillary area. Oh yeah. There's an art. Yeah. There's, yeah. It's, it's something like that. It's some kind of axial thing. Yep. Okay. Uh, it sounds familiar. Then, we'll just, we'll yeah. just go with it. We'll just go with it under the armpit. That, that's enough scientific. to give folks yes. a visual. Uh, and then the forehead as well. Um, Cause obviously there's uh, there's always these discussions about how much heat transfer happens at the, the head. Mm -hmm. So what you can essentially do is start to break down the heat transfer in and out of different parts of your body. And this is where my engineering brain kicks in. Cause you treat everything as a separate uh, what engineers call control volume. So you've got uh, heat flow in and out. 
Um, and then that can impact the temperature of that part of your body. So you've got this broken down into more and more pieces and you're calculating the heat flux that, uh, that drives the heat transfer in and out of these different body parts. So how does that tie into the fan? Um, what the fan does is it drives a higher heat flux. So obviously if you're getting more cooling, you're going to be driving more heat out of the surface. Mm -hmm. So, um, so the core body temperature allows us to measure the heat transfer out of, or sorry, core body temperature sensor, not it's always confusing to get the name of the <laughs> I wish they called and... it like the woozle wazzle or something, yeah. you know, like something, something totally unrelated to core Maybe body version temperature. Two. Yes. Uh, so yes, the, the sensor calculates the heat flux, which is what we want to measure because the more effective a fan is the better heat flux, the more heat transfer you're getting out of your body. So if you're trying to, if you're just trying to get, so just, just so I understand, if you are after uh, core body temperature, one sensor is good enough, right? It's it's gonna according to core, yes. it's gonna give you an accurate number. But if you want to study some device intervention, whatever technique, where you're you're key, where you're curious about heat flux, then you are best served by <clears throat> by excuse me by a number of these sensors. Exactly. Yes. So I believe there's an expert mode that uh, if you get in touch with them and you have some testing to do, they'll help you out with it. It's not mm -hmm. generally available to to people. It's not that it's proprietary. It's just I think it would confuse more people who don't necessarily know what they're looking for. Um, right. So I think it is generally available and I really hope that I'm not giving away something here, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Core is now going to be bombarded with a bunch of nerd, nerd requests <laughs> to, sure uh, to turn on, turn on uh, uh, expert mode, or maybe this will, this will get, this will, you know, encourage people to go out and buy the sensor, in which case core core can't complain to us too much. Absolutely. Um, no, it's, uh, it's super interesting because it does expose some data that's not normally available and their algorithms like that, what they use for normal activity. Um, this is part of their, their secret sauce, but, uh, they, they measure heat flux. So if you have a combination of your skin temperature and the heat flux through that boundary, um, that can basically through different training and measurement data, you can determine what your core body temperature is. And that's how it normally works. Got um, it. But for these tests, they just used heat flux just to see where are you actually getting more heat transfer. Right. So that was how they performed the measurement. So the the, the general consensus, um, which is obvious, is a fan, any fan, is better than no fan. <laughs> so, yep. Yeah. We we're we're not. Yeah. That 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 would be the the trivial conclusion, I guess, of that of this experiment. Yes. And then I think the. The different ranges of fans they used. So there was a like a small desktop fan. Mm -hmm. There was a, an air mover fan, which is a low pressure, high volume fan. And this is something mm -hmm. we can come back to. Yes, um, please. Yes. And then there was a high pressure, high volume. So if you've ever seen the carpet drying fans, they have a little, they're scroll fans, basically. Um, they kick out like a ton of velocity. Um, so if you want to make those faces like dogs out car windows, um, <laughs> those fans are great for that. That's perfect. That's a perfect description of that. Or people out of car windows, right? I was giving people the benefit of the doubt, but uh... <laughs> I love it. Okay, that's that for for now, for for the sake of this interview. That's what we're going to be calling that fan: <laughs> the dog face out of car window fan. Or we can call it a scroll fan. Uh, either way. <laughs> I don't know. I'd I go for dog out of car window, please. Uh, and then the only non-generic type of fan was the uh, the Wahoo headwind. 
which is uh, again a higher pressure, higher velocity fan. Um, and and basically the the reviewer uh, I can't recall his name at the moment, but uh, he said that you know the the scroll fan or the the high volume ones and the Wahoo headwind as well. Um, they were uncomfortable to to have on anything but a, a really hard effort, just because they cool you down so much. Yeah, but doesn't the, the doesn't the headwind uh, the Wahoo product that that adjusts it right? has pretty good yeah. adjustable. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So he's talking about it like at max velocity, it's uncomfortable. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's interesting because uh, before this interview, we were talking about CFM versus velocity versus overall cooling. So there's mm-hmm. multiple things that uh, that come into play here, and the CFM is definitely important. But if you have a large fan, even if it has high CFM, it's moving a lot of air volume. But what what is really important to you as a person uh, for cooling is getting um, the maximum velocity over the maximum area. So it's kind of like we deal with CDA uh, for Mm. aerodynamics. You've got a drag coefficient and you've got your area. So you've got a heat transfer coefficient and your area in this case. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing that's important is the delta T between the air and the surface. So there are many things that can affect all of these. So it becomes quite complicated. but we can we can dig it into each of them. So like the yeah, area, well, and also relative humidity, right? Yeah, and that that comes down to like relative humidity is definitely part of it. Um, I would say that comes more into play with the temperature difference between the surfaces. It's kind of that temperature difference is a function because how much sweat evaporates will depend on the relative humidity. Right. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. So you're saying relative humidity is baked into the delta T because the delta T is affected by how much evaporation is happening. Basically, yeah. Okay, so what cool. we've kind of done here is reconstructed the uh, the heat transfer calculation. So the, the standard equation is Q, so your heat transfer, um, is equal to your heat transfer coefficient times your area times your delta T. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way it can more technically be defined is your temperature gradient at the surface. Um, there, there's a few ways to, to get into that. But... Um, if we want to just break it down, so heat transfer air, heat transfer coefficient, area, delta T. So let's start with area because it's the simplest. So when you have a fan blowing on more of your body, <laughs> this is another trivial thing, but you have it blowing on more of your body, it will be colder or you will lose more heat. Um, it's why in the winter when it's windy, you want to pull the drawstrings on your hood tight because you don't want any more <laughs> surface area on your face. Um, and it's why you don't stick your face out a car window in the winter. <laughs> in the winter. <laughs> don't, please don't do this. <laughs> so yeah, the area, um, and this is where the CFM argument comes in a little bit, but the area is critical for getting the most heat transfer. Now, mm-hmm. how well your body actually generates heat or removes heat at different locations, like your, your fingers, for example, um, there's not a lot of heat generated there. So you don't need a lot of finger cooling. Um, mm-hmm. But I know in the winter, uh, for that exact reason, because they don't generate heat, I know when I'm skiing, my fingers get super cold unless it's a really hard effort. And that's because right. they don't generate heat. But no, that's all. that also has to do with how your body manages heat through like vasodilation and vasoconstriction too. It is true. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So heat transfer coefficient. Uh, what drives the heat transfer coefficient? So this is mostly driven by... Uh, kind of the air velocity or 
this is where I was kind of saying the temperature gradient at the surface drives the heat transfer coefficient or the velocity gradient mm-hmm. at the surface plays into it. Um, but there's a lot of correlations. Um, there are monster textbooks written just on this subject. And <laughs> so we're going to ask you to summarize those monster textbooks and give somebody like an actionable bit of advice. So can we go, can we play the game of like faster airflow is better, sl- yes. lower airflow is worse. This is better. This is worse. So that's, is. that's where. Yeah. Okay, so you, let's you do it. it there. So generally speaking, the more of your body, and this is combining area and heat transfer coefficient, the more of your body you can have exposed to faster moving airflow, mm-hmm. the more heat you're going to reject. Um, and again, I think that's a fairly trivial answer. Like it makes sense to a lot of people. So fan placement would become really important too. Yes. Is, because of where, like how your, what your riding position happens to be, if you're in TT or if you're sitting up or whatever, like then if you're in TT, maybe having this fan blow on your face and back makes a lot of, makes a lot of, uh, you know, yes, uh, a lot of uh, sense. So this is motivation to ride in your arrow position, because if you're directly facing your fan and you're getting airflow on both your back and on your chest, uh, you're now maybe not doubling, but you're getting a significant increase in the amount of area you're exposing to higher velocity air. But so, so with these, uh, with the, you know, the, the headwind and the, uh, the dog out the car window fan, because uh, I like looking at the pictures of these and I've seen a headwind in a store, I've never used one, but the, the air outlet seems to be a lot smaller than obviously the big air mover fan. So would, uh, would that, res- would, are they aiming the airflow too tightly? Is it too narrow a spot? Yeah, and I believe one of the conclusions in the argument was that the headwind and the other air mover showed kind of different results. Like ultimately it was a similar overall heat transfer, but uh, they showed more concentrated heat transfer because of that fact that it was a more concentrated jet. And it's going to be higher velocity, so you get higher heat transfer, uh, higher heat transfer coefficient, but at a larger, or sorry, a smaller surface area. So higher Q, or yeah, higher heat transfer, but a smaller surface you're removing the heat from. So it kind of balances out, or at least in this case, in this test, which was a single data point, single type of riding, um, it, it balanced out. Yeah, I was looking. I was looking at the at the results that uh, that this reviewer and let's find his name so that we don't we can actually refer to him by name. Uh, it's it was Rona McLaughlin who reviewed this uh, who wrote this article and thank you Rona for doing that. Uh, but it looks like across the the air mover the the dog dog face out the window fan and the uh, the Wahoo headwind the energy transfer based on his calculations were pretty much a wash. They were really really close together. Yeah, yeah. I think the difference might have been in the heat transfer coefficients or the specific heat flux measurements. Um, but yeah, so generally speaking, like, again, it goes into a combination of air volume and velocity. Now, um, how would you improve this? Or how would you make it better? So if you had a fan that were concentrated over your entire body, um, so you're not getting a lot of excess airflow that's going around you, but you've got a high velocity uh, that's hitting your body, then uh, that would that would concentrate maybe the same volume of uh, or volumetric flow rate over over your surface, and this is where CFM comes in. So if you've got this giant air mover fan, I'm thinking like one of those ones you see in the movies where um, you know there's uh, like clearing out a warehouse or something like that, where they've got uh, these massive fans, oh, they're, but they're, they're not... filming a windy scene outside, and they, it's <laughs> well, not it happens to not be windy. Yeah. But not even that, maybe, because like they, they move a lot of volume of air, but not at high velocity. So, so you might get 
like 5,000 CFM off one of these fans, but it's 5,000 CFM over a frontal area that's 10 times what your body is. Yeah, so that's the the disadvantage, or that's maybe the little bit of the red herring with the the high CFM fans. So they they can be good, but it's just the CFM. Like ultimately, it's the average velocity over the fan area is what you want to to focus on, uh, or what I would want to focus on. So I've got uh, a couple of fans. I think they're probably around forty centimeters, fairly high velocity, um, and they do the job quite well for me. So um, so I like that style of fan, uh, as opposed to the, the square outlet, like the really, really high velocity, which I find personally, I find it too concentrated, <clears throat> but, uh, everyone has their own preference. Yeah. I think, uh, I, I, th- I think that's the summaries that you want to, you know, you want the maximum if you're, if you really need the heat transfer, because for instance, for example, and to your point, when you were talking about ambient temperature, when I'm training in my basement, in my, you know, somewhat not finished basement in the Canadian winter and it's minus 20 degrees outside Celsius folks uh, my basement may be 14 degrees Celsius which is like 56 or 57 degrees Fahrenheit for our American listeners so it's cold it's when I come in here and I put my shorts on I'm cold and so then when I jump on the bike sometimes I don't even use the fan because it's just it, there's it, there's enough kind of passive heat transfer evaporative heat transfer that I don't even need it but on anything but the lowest setting in the winter even if I'm going full gas it's way too cold so let's let's actually dig into that a little bit because that's the other part of the equation that we haven't really talked about is the temperature difference um, so obviously cold air, um, it feels colder. Um, so I feel like most of what I'm saying is pretty obvious here, uh, but cold air, um, what, what impact would it have? So for example, if your skin is, uh, starting out a ride, your skin temperature is say 30 degrees Celsius. Um, and you have indoor, like your house is heated to say 22 or 23 degrees, um, so you'd have an eight degree temperature difference there for a given fan setup. So if you've got your um, your fan going and uh, the same configuration, not dependent on temperature, you'd have say X amount. If you then, uh, well, if you, Michael, uh, had the same fan in your 14 degrees Celsius basement, um, that's now conveniently, actually, I like the way the numbers worked out here. Uh, it's twice as large of a temperature difference, which means your heat transfer is twice as much, which is why you get so cold. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so I would have to double the air velocity to get the same kind of heat transfer in the 22 Celsius room. That's where it's a little, Oh, it's not linear. It's not linear like that. Um, okay. so the heat transfer coefficient doesn't necessarily double, uh, and, what can happen is as you start to pull more heat out of a surface, that surface temperature um, decreases until it matches mm. the environment. Um, yeah, because right, right, right. Good point. There, there's more than one part to this chain. It's not like your surf, your skin is generating the heat. It's generated inside. Uh, and That's it right. It's not like it's a constant temperature surface that is constant temperature no matter what. Yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, and this is where it gets a little bit uh, maybe confusing for people, and we'll get it. We'll make it even worse when we throw in evaporation. But um, <laughs> we've got uh, uh, basically this this chain of conduction or, or moving heat from the center of your body. And if you can't get it from your core out to your extremities or out to the surface, you can't dissipate the heat. Um, so your body 
does its best. And there's not a whole lot you can do to improve that. Um, this stay is, hydrated. Yeah, stay hydrated. Higher plasma volume will move the <clears throat> move the heat around a little bit better. Um, but uh, it needs to get to the surface. And if you're cooling the surface as much as possible, um, that is not going to be the limiting part. The convection at the surface is not going to be the limiting part of the heat transfer calculation. So it's it's going to be limited by the ability of your body to get it to the surface. Mm-hmm. So that's very interesting. But that, that I think that that requires pretty pretty monstrous efforts. Like I think you'd have to be working very very hard for it, it, in like cool conditions or you know mm-hmm. reasonably cool conditions with good airflow with a good fan. Uh, and I'm, this is just anecdotal. I can't like I can't think of. I w- it would be curious to know what like the overheat conditions would look like. Like how hard, like how many, let's say, bike watts would you be have? Would you have to put out, you know? And then obviously for an extended period of time, right? Like even if you have a two thousand watt sprint for three seconds, obviously that makes no difference because that's not a very long time span. Like if you were doing a one hour race, what kind of power would you have to hold to overheat in in you know a well ventilated, cool, uh, well fanned uh, basement? More than I'm capable of. <laughs> yeah, totally. Definitely more than I'm capable of. Anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. Go ahead. You're, as you increase the fan speed, your skin temperature actually will approach the air um, because it's mm-hmm. all balancing out. So there's a couple components to this thermal resistance calculation, and that will that will just balance in the, the total scheme of things. So the more air you go, you put on there, it doesn't necessarily increase cooling. It can, or it will up to a point, but that's why... If you're getting, uh, you know, 20 or 30 kilometer an hour winds, it doesn't feel significantly colder to get 60 kilometer an hour winds under most circumstances. Mm. And this is you, you keep you keep mentioning how it feels, and this is I think uh, another another wrinkle that we can or another wrench we can throw into this whole calculation that we perceive cold or hot not by our core temperature but by the uh, temperature receptors in our skin, right? So our perception of temperature comes from skin temperature or the air temperature around our skin. Or probably It's probably the heat transfer from our skin to the outside world that really triggers those sensors the most. And the and and you know we don't have core as far as i know we don't have uh, thermal receptors inside our you know inside our body cavity so the what's interesting is that that perception drives a lot of our colors are you know exercise rpe you know we've talked about this a little bit in the past how you know that perceived effort is very very important and and anecdotally and i think this is borne out but at least anecdotally for me for example even if on a, on a hot day, even if my core temperature is fairly stable, I feel a lot. I feel that heat stress a lot more acutely than I would on a cool day for this for the exact same body temp for the exact same core temperature, mm-hmm. right? So that perception of heat, especially you know, and especially if it's warm outside and heat is a heat is something that is perceived as uncomfortable when we're exercising, that can make a big difference. So I'm wondering if the you know the the speed of the airflow from these fans plays a role in how how cool we feel how cool our skin feels even if it doesn't move necessarily move the needle a ton on on core temperature what do you think well i think that um again if you kind of saturate the heat transfer at the surface then your your skin temperature all it's going to do is approach the ambient temperature right so it will only feel so cold and if the skin receptors are triggering that then that's where you get into that diminishing returns like it you can't drive, like if your Delta T, say your skin temperature, for example, is um, 22 and a half degrees and your room temperature is 22 degrees. 
mm-hmm. if you have an, a massive amount of flow and you drive it down to 22.1 degrees or 22.05 degrees, it's not going to feel that much colder than the 22.5. So, right. And you're not getting much, too much heat transfer at that point. No. Oh, no, no. you're getting a ton of heat transfer, well, wouldn't you be? It, it wouldn't because your delta T is going down. So you'd have maybe yeah. a higher heat transfer coefficient, but your delta T would be going down. So, and again, right. it's probably because your body getting the heat to the surface is actually the bottleneck of the entire process. Mm-hmm. So where this gets interesting is with sweat. <laughs> so phenomenal <laughs> ev- evolutionary adaptation. Like I love sweat. I don't think, well, it is gross, but I think it's, uh, it's, no, it's, magic not a, it's delightful. Way. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone so, who exercises can no longer think that sweat is gross. <laughs> so sweat, we've talked about this before, but just the power of evaporation is massive. Um, so you can get a huge amount of heat transfer if you can evaporate all the sweat. Now, how does it actually drive the heat transfer? Um, so there's the, the, the evaporation process, it does absorb a ton of energy, but there's something, and this is where humidity comes into play. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something called the dry bulb and wet bulb temperatures uh, for air. Go listen to episode number, I don't remember, but I will put it in the show notes because we, we, we covered dry bulb, wet bulb in, in detail in one of the episodes uh, or one of the earlier episodes on heat transfer. So that's the good, you can, you can pause that, pause this one here, listeners. And if you want to learn about dry bulb and wet bulb, uh, go to that episode, which is now listed in the show notes. Maybe you can just insert the entire episode right here. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, so with dry bulb temperature, it's basically what a thermometer measures most of the time. So when you say it's 25 degrees out, that's dry bulb temperature. Uh, wet bulb temperature is basically with maximum amount of evaporation, how much you can drive down that that temperature. Um, so right. you get into this whole field of HVAC and the, like this is all building calculations use all this stuff, but it's called psychrometrics. Um, if you want to go look up a psychrometric chart, um, it was the it's... episode art for that episode. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, oh, the Instagram or maybe like just the Instagram post for that episode. Yeah. That, yeah. That, it was a psychrometric chart. They are funky looking charts. Um, very useful. But uh, basically it's a correlation between wet bulb, dry bulb, and uh, relative humidity. And there's a bunch of other things, including air enthalpy and uh, absolute humidity. But that stuff we won't even get into. Uh, but basically, the wet bulb temperature is how much you can drive down the surface temperature by evaporating um, all the the moisture there. So, in extreme cases of very very low humidity, um, so like Arizona or desert conditions, uh, mm-hmm. you can actually decrease the temperature by ten or fifteen degrees Celsius. So that means, oh, wow. um, with like zero percent humidity, which rarely happens, but uh, with extremely low humidity, you could have your surface temperature on your skin, which starts out at 30 degrees with enough cooling. You could drive that down to say 15 degrees. Hmm. So, um, and that's the power of evaporation. And now this Delta T, um, so the Delta T on the surface of the skin, which is driving the heat out of your body, uh, that is much larger, which is why when you're wet and you get, you know, if you're wet on a, a windy day, it feels really, really cold um, because mm-hmm. you are just pulling an insane amount of heat out of your body. Um, and anyone who lives in kind of the southwest of the U.S., um, there's evaporative cooling for air conditioning, swamp cooling. Um, but basically, you just let air uh, evaporate water and it cools it down significantly. It raises the humidity, mm-hmm. 
but it cools it down. Now in Ontario, um, because it's typically high relative humidity, you don't get that same subcooling effect. You get a little bit, uh, maybe two or three degrees, but it's not enough to really, really get those crazy temperature differences. So mm. that's, uh, that's the power of evaporation. And that's why when you start sweating, um, or if you, turn, if, if you start sweating and then turn a fan on, um, it's going to be uncomfortable for a few seconds. Um, mm. So I'm sure most people have experienced that, but it's because your, your surface, like it's saturated with moisture, um, all of a sudden it's evaporating like crazy and it's turning your skin temperature, which might be at 30 degrees without much evaporation. Uh, it's driving it down maybe five or 10 degrees in a very short amount of time. Yeah, this makes me think of why, you know, and we've, I think we've talked about this uh, on the show before that, yeah, or I've talked about it with other people. It's hard to remember, separate podcasts from reality these days. Um, where, that, you know, you, uh, you know, I do and other people who I've talked to, we will warm up first, you know, no fan, up until you get warmed up, and then you turn the fan on. And mm. I was just, the way you were just saying makes perfect sense. And I think one of the reasons that that practice uh, works, and it's it, it's reasonable, is not only are you you know, you're raising the temperature a little bit, raising the core temperature a little bit, getting the muscles going, but you're also increasing that circulation to the skin. So now the skin is getting, a, you know, your body's kicking in that thermal regulation mechanism that it that it's that is so well developed in endurance athletes. And so then when you turn the fan on, yes, you're you're probably a little bit sweaty at this point. And yes, the initial sh- there, the fan is starting to pull quite a bit of, uh, of heat from your skin. But at the same time, your circulatory system is now firing. So the that heat is replenished from, you know, the heat from your, you know, the metabolism that's happening in your working muscles. So then it doesn't feel as cold because yes, there is heat transfer there, but also there's like a, you know, there's also heat, there's, there's enhanced heat transfer inside your own body from, you know, the muscles to the skin. Yeah. So, um, I think those were most of the points that I wanted to cover. So basically the fundamentals of, of heat transfer. And, uh, yeah. Uh, just again, yeah, again, just in case, but also listeners, the, the key takeaways I think for fans are, you do want speed. You kind of pro- if you need if you need maximum cooling. If you're one of these people that 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 you know, or maybe you're in a warmer place and you need more, you know, more cooling than your your basement is not 14 degrees. Well, neither is my basement in the summer. Um, but uh, yeah, if or if you're working really hard, you you know, you need that cooling. You want the maximum velocity over the biggest surface area. Those are the mm-hmm. two the two key takeaways. This is how you you should be buying and locating your you know locating in your in your training set up your next fan, I would say. So I've actually thought of putting, having three fans. And if anyone wants to try this, I would love to hear how it goes. But taking <laughs> three fans, uh, one basically off to my right and a little bit in front, kind of pointing up at me, one off to my left, a little bit in front, pointing up at me, and then one behind me pointing towards my back. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of going the opposite direction that you would normally. But that will get... Um, basically all the heat transfer off your legs, your chest, your face. And then you're also getting as much air velocity on your back, which is not normally exposed to at least Mm -hmm. indoors, not exposed to a lot of cooling. Um, so that would be like the ultimate, but, uh, yeah, don't, don't turn it on when you're sweaty and it's 14 degrees in your basement. (laughs) Unless you're working really hard. Even then. (laughs) Okay. Listeners, uh, we, we did promise you a listener question and this is one that we'll spend a little bit less time talking about, but, uh, 
Um, one of our one of the folks that listens to the show named Kevin uh, wrote in, uh, and it was uh, in response to the uh, the episode we did with Will O'Connor about running with power. Uh, and so Kevin was curious about running aerodynamics, um, which is something that we've kind of kicked around a little bit in the past, but we haven't done a ton, a, a very deep dive. And this will not be one of those. Uh, this will not be a deep dive today. Uh, we're actually looking for some folks who can who can really who really have some hard numbers about this. So this is just going to be kind of a a napkin cal- calculation kind of approach at it. But um, Kevin was talking about you know look he's he he's running at around uh, four four minutes per kilometer and he's wondering how much clothes matter. So obviously we've talked in great detail on our cycling aerodynamics podcast about how much uh, a form fitting piece of kit makes a difference. Uh, before you even get into, you know, the surfaces on that kit, uh, how if you're if you've got flappy bits, you know, if you're wearing like a, a, a is this a, flappy clothing bits or flappy body bits? <laughs> you know, if you've got flappy body bits, I think you probably aerodynamics are not at the top of your list of priorities uh, when you're when you're riding. I mean, all power to you. You know, the the naked bike bike rides are are great, um, <laughs> but I don't think any of those folks are are too concerned with. Uh, with uh, aerodynamics, uh, with in in what they're doing. No, I'm talking about cl- uh, flappy clothing bits. So, so Kevin's question uh, is is trying to port that over to running, um, and he wonders since most runners run in fairly loose clothing, right, uh, singlets or, or t-shirts, um, does it will it make much of a difference if he were to wear uh, a tri kit? And I think his only his only reason not for doing that is so that you know he doesn't get made too much fun of by by all the other people in the field when he when he shows up rocking a tri kit to a marathon so uh andrew what do you think how much uh what, what's the what's a napkin math look like for flappy <laughs> kit versus versus tight fitted kit in a in a four minute per kilometer kind of pace well i was running out of room on my napkin but uh to tie this actually into our previous discussion <laughs> you need a bigger napkin man <laughs> engineering size napkin <laughs> yeah that's right so to tie this into a previous conversation actually uh a tight fitting tri top would actually help with cooling uh, because now you have your sweat being wicked by the surface. You can get that evaporation. So that's that's one thing. I'm just going to leave cooling off the table now. I just wanted to mention <laughs> that. Um, but yeah, so we were just doing some very rough numbers on what the power might be. So 15 kilometers an hour is like that's a pretty good marathon pace for most people. Um, I would say. Yeah, it's better than it's. It's like a two fifty something. Or we should we should know this off the top of our heads. But it's it's somewhere. It's definitely yeah, it's sub like three. Two, it's like two fifty six. I think is where it works out. Somewhere. No, it's a little there. bit faster than that. Anyway, whatever. It's faster than three. So it's it's a very very respectable, <laughs> you know, recreational marathon. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not the twenty one point well, okay, five yeah, kilometers <laughs> an hour that uh, the the super elites are doing. Uh, but it's it's pretty fast. So that works out to about four meters per second. Uh, which, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's four minutes per kilometer. Yeah. Four minutes kilometer, but it's also around four meters per second. It's like 4.1 meters per second. So you're right. Okay. Yeah. I actually, I use that number for the calculations, but basically you've got your aerodynamic drag. So the, uh, half row V squared. So half density times velocity squared times your CDA. So that 4.13 comes in in the velocity. When you work that out, someone running around, four minutes per kilometer or four meters per second, uh, they, they would generate around 40 watts of drag power. Um, so that the, 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 we, we had to take some guesses here, right? Like that's yeah. based the, 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 the CDA here was, it was a bit of a flyer. Yeah. So the CDA, I, I said, okay, you're upright, you're exposing everything. 
and your body isn't really an aerodynamic shape, so I just said one. Uh, it might actually be a little bit lower than that. That might be a very tall person, but uh, I just said 1.0 was the number we we're going to use, and that works out to about 40 watts. So 40 watts for aerodynamic drag is far from the 200 plus watts of aerodynamic drag that we typically see with cyclists. So mm -hmm. already we know it's a different order of magnitude, and we knew that going in. Um, so how much of an impact would floppy clothes make? Um, there is a surprising amount of drag that comes from something like a flag. Um, so anything that's waving generates a lot of resistance. And that flag-like flapping is what you often see with faster speeds with runners. Um, but let's say, probably worst case, if you increase your drag by about 20%, that means okay. your, uh, you increase your CDA by about 20%. So that means your drag is going to go up by about 8 watts in this case, so 40 to 48 watts. Mm -hmm. um, so eight watts of increased drag, that's not nothing, but what kind of effort would it likely take? And this is where your numbers, Michael. Yeah. Uh, and this is where we don't, we, the, the, the short answer is we don't know. Right. So I've, um, if you folks, if you listen to our chat with Will, uh, about running power meters, uh, I've used a stride forever. I'm, you know, uh, Will convinced me that there's more value to it than I, than I thought at first. Again, go listen to that show. It was a good one. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the, one of the interesting things about that power is, and as we talked about in that show is that we don't really know what it's measuring. It's a number. It's a number that we do believe is consistent. And we do, I now believe is useful in, in, you know, a good subset of training scenarios and racing scenarios. Um, but if we take that to be the an analog of cycling power, uh, for me, and I'm a, you know, fairly, uh, heavy individual, I think robust. when I was really robust, yes, robust is that's the, that's the, um, the, uh, paleontological term for it or the, I don't know, whatever, whatever science studies, ancient humans, um, I guess not paleontology. It would be anthropology. That would be the anthropological uh, term for it. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm a robust runner, uh, around 82 kilos, and I think for me to run four minutes per kilometer, which is like roughly my 10k pace, uh, it was in the ballpark of 340 watts of stride power. And of course, stride power is very dependent on weight because, you know, unlike cycling, every step you take in running is, is, is going to be, is going to require more power for the same kind of efficiency if you weigh more, right? So weight is definitely more of a penalty in running. That's why I'm talking about my robustness in, at all in this conversation. So even if, even if you're running on flat terrain, the, the more you weigh, the more energy you're going to mm -hmm. have to, the more metabolic energy is going to cost you to go for at the same speed as someone lighter. So um, having said that, so for me, it was around 340 watts of stride power um, uh, to, to, run, to run at that speed. So if we're, if we're saying... Now that's not including aero drag because I don't have the the stride wind version. So we're gonna assume that we're gonna tack on 40 watts to that uh, for aero drag. So that's you know gets me up to around 380. And then if then then if I do you know that's we're gonna round that up to 400 because it makes it for easier math. Because then um, eight extra watts for a flappy kit versus no flappy kit is around two percent, right? So we're getting to the point where it's where it's 2%, where a flappy kit makes a 2% difference, which uh, doesn't sound like a lot, but there's a, there's a few things to consider. For example, if you're somebody who is maybe 70 kilos, then your, your power to overcome 
um, or to run at, at that pace is going to be much lower than mine. Um, and then that that becomes a much big. So then aero drag becomes a bigger percentage of the power that you have to put in to, to travel at that speed. Uh, number one. Um, and part of the reasons why this is, of course, a lower number than cycling is because the speeds are so much slower, mm-hmm. right? So a flappy kit on a, on a cyclist would cost much more than 2% potentially versus uh, versus a runner. But, um, you know, 2% is also not nothing, right? Like we're, if you're, if you're looking at the average, I think the, uh, the average, um, um, the average efficiency improvement, which is not the same thing. And I'm not, you know, trying to conflate these two things, the, but the average running economy, let me use the right terms, the average running economy improvement of a, of a Nike 4% shoe or similar is for the average runners, I believe somewhere in the like the high two point high percent, like 2.7, 2.9%. So this is a very similar improvement from having a flappy kit to a non-flappy kit is kind of the same order of magnitude, the same sort of size of effect as you would from going from a you know a traditional shoe to a super shoe, as an example. And just to note, like if you're running five minute kilometers, um power is it goes up with the cube of speed drag power goes up with the cube of speed so that 40 watts drops very very quickly uh, and likewise going faster it increases very quickly as well so the i guess the empirical evidence and this isn't i i don't advocate following this from a scientific perspective but the <laughs> empirical evidence is that the fast people who have focused on aerodynamics and this is like the the two hour attempt they still wore slightly flappy kit um so they yeah the shorts we were talking about this before the shorts were tight but their singlets were still there was still some flap to the singlets yeah so not not like a big you know baggy t-shirt that uh Mm -hmm. you know a skateboarder from the 90s might wear but um or a downhiller from the 90s as as our (laughs) as our buddy as our buddy matt was talking about when we when we we talked to them about aerodynamics yeah, so it's again, it's. Um, oh, I forgot where I was going with this. <laughs> <laughs> it's not too. Flat. That image was stuck in my head. <laughs> yeah, so ultimately, like it's um, yeah, the pros, the the really ultra elite, um, they're focusing. They are focusing on aerodynamics, but they see bigger gains in something like drafting uh, versus something like just wearing a slightly tighter mm-hmm. kit. And that's, um, it's not to say there's nothing there, but it might be a balance of comfort where a particular runner might be more comfortable totally. and that comfort might offset the psychological impact that comfort might offset the performance gains from aerodynamics. Right. Especially if they're drafting to your point, but I guess what you were, you know, if I can just, you know, bring your argument to its conclusion, uh, about, uh, folks who are, let's say running five minute kilometers or six minute kilometers, right. Which is sort of the, 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 the meat of the bell curve of the, of the recreational running population for a race, like a marathon. Um, probably you, you, you should definitely err on the side of comfort versus what's most aerodynamic, right. And that's probably where you were going with that. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm just doing a quick calculation here. Yeah, the, the, the clacking you're hearing in the in the background, listeners, is Andrew working his this is an old school his financial, financial calc- calculator. <laughs> How much does it cost to go that fast? Four dollars and fifty cents. This is much harder when I have this commentary going on. Uh, okay. <laughs> so yeah, if if you are going 
about 20% slower for a five minute kilometer. Um, if you basically, cause of the cubic relationship I mentioned, you've got the, the, um, 1.2 times 1.2 times 1.2. This is definitely staying in the show, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, so you'd have 73% less drag. Um, oh, wow. So so then you probably wouldn't even, couldn't even measure it. It would be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It would be very marginal. So like your, your 40 watts is now uh, less than 40, significantly less than 40. <laughs> less than 40. Um, yeah, and then, 10 watts. And the difference is even even smaller. So anyway, sure. it uh, it drops off. Yeah, it drops off very, very quickly. So um, yeah, I don't think there's, unless you're like a super elite runner, um, then there's probably not a big gain. So be comfortable rather than being slightly more aerodynamic. And Kevin, if you're listening, let us know if the other runners made fun of you if you did decide to rock up in a in a tri suit. I'm that's the uh, that's that's what I want to that's what I'm really curious about. Um, but it, curiously, the it's a similar it's not the same uh, drop you know not the same like precipitous drop off in performance advantage um, as aerodynamics. But there is I was just recently reading a note from um, uh, Dustin Jobert, who was a former guest who was talking about super shoes on our show how slower runners benefit noticeably less from those shoes than faster runners, right? Because the, 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 the improvement in running economy is lower, but because they spend more time out there, then it sort of washes out. But it's, it's curious to see that, well, I guess it's not that curious that the, you know, across the board, you know, if you, if you go a little bit, if you go slower, then you have to sweat those, those fine details less, you know, you don't have to worry too much about them. And I think it's a similar argument with the Speedo, um, that super suit from, was it the 2008 Olympics that got banned? After oh, the laser? Yeah. I think it was like the laser or something. Yeah. So from, from what I heard, um, well, a friend who, uh, who has been on the show, actually, Art Hare, um, I remember him mentioning that, uh, first of all, those suits are only good for like three or four wears before they lose all their body reshaping properties um mm. but the other thing is like if you're not a fast swimmer you can actually get slower wearing one of these things so mm. it's it's a very steep curve in terms of where the benefits are um which is a moot point because they don't sell them they're not legal for really anything yeah. anymore fina banned them pretty quick yeah so yeah anyway cool. uh so does that wrap up our question here yeah, it does. Kevin, thanks so much for submitting it. Folks, if you have a question, I've been trying to throw up uh, Q&As on, um, uh, or AMAs rather, on Instagram uh, when we have a guest coming up, which I'll continue to do. If you think they're a good idea, just keep asking questions. And if you have your, a question that has uh, nothing to do with what I posted for the weekend, because like I said, usually it ties in with a guest that we have coming on, then uh, still ask that question. But uh, yeah, I think that's it for us, Andrew. I think... Uh, We've talked about flappy bits and, and your cal- I've made fun of your calculator enough Cold for, uh, for one evening. <laughs> Old flappy bits. What a nerdy episode. I hope that yeah. uh, at least someone enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed talking about it. <laughs> well, if they stuck around long enough to hear you clacking away on your calculator, that was their reward. <laughs> Okay, I think this is this is this is when we've we've hit like peak silliness and now it's time for us to sign off. <laughs> 
So as always, listeners, thank you for spending the time with us. If you think that what we're doing is uh, at all valuable, whether you you got a chuckle out of today and uh, hopefully you learned something of where to put your fan and uh, uh, whether or not you want to shave your legs for your next marathon, um, then uh, do give us a review. Uh, five stars goes a long way. Uh, an actual written review goes even further. Tell some friends. Uh, our listenership is steadily growing. I forget where we're at right now, but we're... And of course, uh, as always, if you really like the show, then consider supporting us. Help us pay for our costs in making it uh, and then help us maybe buy some toys uh, <laughs> for for our own entertainment and aero testing stuff. More core uh, body temperature sensors so that we can... Core, core body temperature. Yeah, we could always use more core body temperature sensors for sure. So we can, we can uh, you know, you can we can post photos of us with six sensors on our bodies. <laughs> or maybe you can pay us not to post photos of ourselves with six sensors on our body. You can, you can, you that that can cut either way. Um. So yeah, and that's at uh, that Patreon page is patreon.com/slash Endurance Innovation. So as always, thanks from us, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.